This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former George W. Bush White House Press Secretary Ari Fleischer discusses his book, Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and Just Doesn't Care. He argues that mainstream media has a bias and is dominated by the left. The media has driven itself into an ideological, cultural cul-de-sac. They can only relate to one group of people, and that's why they carve the news, create the news, cover certain stories the way they do. It's why Colin Kaepernick, when he kneeled at a football game, became a symbol of heroism to so many college-educated Democrats, including reporters. But to the rest of the country, it was an act of disrespect. He's interviewed by Fox News senior political analyst and author Juan Williams. Ari Fleischer, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Juan. Let me begin by giving you the opportunity to tell people about the book, the thesis. Well, my thesis is that the mainstream media is one of the biggest causes of the polarization in America today. That the number of stories they put on the air that were wrong, most of all of which were to get Donald Trump and to hurt Republicans or conservatives, the number of stories that they suppressed, which would have hurt Joe Biden, particularly during the campaign, has added up to a nation that no longer trusts the mainstream media. And our democracy needs to have a mainstream media that people rely on, believe in, and trust, and the press has let us down. Well, so I think lots of people on the left would say, gee, uh, you know, during the 2016 campaign, it looked like C-SPAN, MSNBC, certainly Fox, all uh, were very much putting Donald Trump on the air repeatedly. um, And they would say, gee, it looks like the press whether or not for ratings, you know, for eyeballs and clicks, were pretty supportive of Donald Trump in the 2016 campaign. Well, my rebuttal to that is the press made a news judgment, and the news judgment was that Donald Trump was newsworthy because the press thought he was so bad, so outlandish, that the more they put him on the air, the more the American people would reject him. And I think the tremendous damage done, Juan, and I write this in the book, was also done not just to conservatives who don't trust the media, but to liberals who do. I, I think back on 16 when most Democrats and liberals were told that Hillary Clinton was going to win in a landslide. You couldn't watch CNN, you couldn't watch MSNBC without being convinced that Donald Trump was going to go down in flames. And then when he didn't, it led to the search for how could this have happened? Everybody I know knew Donald Trump would lose. And that was one of the things that made collusion more of a a credible notion for the left, because there had to be an explanation since Donald Trump was supposed to lose this race. If the media had done a better job being in touch with America, the coverage in 16 would have said Donald Trump actually may win because there are rumblings in this country. There's tremendous discontent in this country, particularly in rural areas, particularly from people who pray every day, particularly from people who think life may begin at conception, or people who have guns or went hunting or go fishing or whose grandfather taught them how to shoot at a young age. I just think that's the missed part of America that the mainstream media doesn't see. And so, therefore, they didn't see how Donald Trump could possibly rise and win. And I think liberals, in many ways, were the victims of the bad coverage that the press gave the 2016 campaign and the rest of the next four years. Well, Ari, in the book, you're pretty critical of the New York Times. But on this front, you know, my memory serves 
to say that the New York Times was the one that broke the Hillary Clinton email story and was very, very strong and, and critical in saying that there was something wrong there. Of course, ultimately it was found nothing was wrong, but gee, that's the liberal press going after the liberal candidate. And I acknowledge that one. In the book, I repeatedly do cite stories from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other, other sources. And I make the point in the book of saying they're not always wrong. But when they are wrong, they're almost always wrong in a direction that hurts Republicans or hurts Donald Trump. The whole collusion narrative, the whole sealed dossier narrative, which received the, the lion's share of coverage in Donald Trump's first three years, it was a relentless, nonstop feeding frenzy all based on nothing, all wrong, all polarized the nation, all gave liberals a reason to think that Donald Trump was illegitimate. And it, it was destructive. If the news was anti-Trump, it got a bump. And that's what I saw for three years of coverage. Yes, they covered the Hillary email scandal. They broke that news. And then when it was clear there was an FBI investigation, they did cover it. But as soon as James Comey said that there were no charges to be made, the story went away, and the press reset about how dangerous Donald Trump was. Well, you know, we were just talking, uh, you mentioned the whole collusion business. Ultimately, the Mueller people said they didn't see evidence specifically of collusion. But I don't think there's any question, I don't know how you feel, but that the Russians put their thumb on the scale in yes. favor of Donald Trump. And you had Paul Manafort, you had that Russian yeah. lawyer going up to Trump Tower, uh, you had... The emails that were hacked, uh, many believe, our intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community believes hacked by the Russians. I personally had, you know, to John Podesta, some of my emails got trapped, caught up in that. It was no fun. So to me, I don't see how it was wrong to have some critical press saying, hey, there's something going on here between Russia's desire to get Trump elected and events taking place on the ground, like the emails being fed into the American media ecosystem and popping up in the press? It's a fair question, Juan. And as I said repeatedly in 2016, live on the air, an attack on one party is an attack on all parties. And I regularly denounced what Russia did. I didn't think it was as much to elect Donald Trump as it was to hurt Hillary Clinton, who they didn't like when she was Secretary of State, and as much as to sow turmoil into the American system and weaken our democracy. Right. I think that's what motivated Russia. But the question immediately became, did Donald Trump do it? Was Donald Trump working with them? And here the press went to overdrive and put numerous stories, especially CNN, on the air that they later had to retract, all of which said that Donald Trump has colluded with Russia on the hacks of the DNC and on the hacks of uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign. So there are two distinct issues here. Yes, Russia was a guilty party. Barack Obama sanctioned Russian officials. The Trump administration went after and punished Russian officials as a result of it. But that had nothing to do with whether Donald Trump was involved. And this was the feeding frenzy that I objected to. And frankly, one, it's what inspired me to write the book. I try to call balls and strikes. While I've agreed with President Trump on many of his policies, I've regularly disagreed with him on much of his behavior. I've regularly tweeted about when Donald Trump did something I thought was inappropriate, rude, or offensive. So I'll continue to call the balls and strikes. But when I saw the press pile on all the stories about collusion, all the damage done to our nation, all the credibility given to the Steele dossier, I blew the whistle. I just thought it's unfair, it's biased, it's wrong. 
And the New York Times and CNN were a massive part of what really became a disinformation campaign to get Donald Trump. And I don't want to see that happen to any president, Democrat or Republican. And part of what I write in the book is there's a suspicion in politics that whoever your opponent is is illegitimate or somehow criminal or that, that they really have crossed the line. And I've tried to resist that my entire career. I believe that the other party is the loyal opposition. I believe that people's motives are good. I disagree with the liberal solutions for what can help America, but I don't question their motives. And I don't like it when people question conservative or Republican or Donald Trump's motives. And that's why I try to stay fair, but I do blow the whistle on the mainstream media, which I think lost its bearings. So, you know, Ari, I came up as, a, as part of the mainstream media at the Washington Post, and I was taught to be adversarial to the people in power. You know, in other words, you question them. You are critical of the people who are in power, asking the questions that the American people want answered, that they may be curious about. Um, so how do you distinguish between a critical press, an adversarial press, which is what I think the Founding Fathers had in mind, uh, and what you would say is uh, overly, I don't know, I guess you would say overly adversarial? No, it's not that they were overly, well, they were ab- overly adversarial to Donald Trump, but they were relentlessly easy on Joe Biden. I want fairness. If you're going to be a tough on one, you need to be tough on the other. And let me, let me give you an example. It's in my book. I use the pictures of it. Mm-hmm. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, front page, banner, across the fold, for, uh, for headline on the, New York, on the Washington Post, pioneer devoted to equality. When Antonin Scalia died, front page, banner, Above the fold headline, same paper, Washington Post, Supreme Court conservative dismayed liberals. Why isn't it the same? Why isn't the headline that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a liberal who dismayed conservatives? Or why wasn't it that Antonin Scalia was devoted to equality? But they lionized one and buried the other. Same thing with Brett Kavanaugh's hearings. When Brett Kavanaugh ducked questions, didn't answer them because... No nominee anymore answers questions about cases that are pending before the court. The headline on the New York Times was he ducks questions. When Elena Kagan, before her nomination hearing in the Senate, did the same thing and didn't answer questions, the headline in the New York Times was she follows precedent. Time and time again, Juan, the media is easy on the Democrats and relentless on the Republicans. And that's where I blow my whistle. And I'll give you one final example that's in my book. In 1998, when Stacey Abrams lost her governor's race in Georgia by a margin that was four times the size of Donald Trump's defeat in Georgia, she lost by more than 50,000 votes. Trump lost by about 12,000 votes. She refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of her opponent's win, the Republican win. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey said the election was stolen. Senator Sherwood Brown of Ohio said the election was stolen. If the media had called them out, and said, you should not say elections were stolen. You undermine our democracy. The election was settled fair and square. How dare you use those words? The press would have had so much more credibility taking on Donald Trump when he said the same thing in 2020. The election wasn't stolen. Donald Trump did lose it. I've said that right from the start. But I will not be hypocritical. If I can call out Donald Trump, I'll call out Stacey Abrams. But the mainstream media shielded Stacey, Stacey Abrams, lionized her, made her a hero, and then called out Donald Trump for saying the same thing. This is the hypocrisy, Juan. I won't participate in it, but I will blow the whistle on it. Well, I wonder if people would say that you're 
you know, jumping over some context there, clearly Stacey Abrams believed that Governor Kemp, a uh, Republican in the race, had taken steps that she felt helped him to win in the total vote. Uh, but well, so did Donald Trump. Well, so did Trump's supporters. They're both wrong. But you can't say one cause is right, so therefore they can say the election was stolen, and the other cause is wrong because they're Republicans. All you do is empower the other side than to say, we're going to go even further because the press isn't fair. And, and, and that's what I object to. The press didn't blow the whistle on Hillary Clinton when two years after the 2016 election, she said that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president, nor did they blow the whistle on Jimmy Carter two years later when Jimmy Carter said Donald Trump was an illegitimate president. So when Donald Trump says things like that, the press goes nuts. When Democrats do things like that, the press yawns. Ari, you were press secretary uh, to President George W. Bush. And I'm sitting here thinking, is there any press secretary who's ever been in the White House who would say, oh, you know, the press treated my guy or, yeah, my guy fairly, uh, and I have no complaints. Isn't it just part of being in the big game in the combat of the modern world, especially modern media, to say, you know what, I don't think my candidate was treated fairly? Yeah, but that's my point about President Trump. I wouldn't necessarily say, I didn't vote for him in 2016. I did vote for him in 2020. I don't work for Donald Trump. And again, when I try to call the balls and strikes as I see them. So, yes, if you're a partisan working for a candidate in office, yeah, you always feel like the press is tough on you. But let's go to a neutral source. There was a study done, it's in my book, of the coverage of the five most recent presidents. And they determined that no, none of the last five got as soft and as easy coverage in their first 60 days in office as Joe Biden. He got easier and softer coverage than Barack Obama. Of course, the two who got the hardest coverage were Trump and Bush. So Clinton was the fifth. So empirical studies show that Joe Biden got the softest, easiest press coverage. And go to the 2020 campaign. The Biden press corps could not have been any easier on Joe Biden. There were numerous scandals. There were numerous things Joe Biden did wrong. One of them, which I relate in my book, he uh, gave an event. It was one of his typical events from the basement where he gave a speech on a teleprompter to a friendly audience, the AFL-CIO. And a young woman asked him a question about how to get more people to join unions. And Joe Biden's answer was, uh, uh, move it up here. M move it up. And then he gave the answer. His teleprompter got stuck. It was clear that the AFL-CIO not only gave him the question, but then his staff wrote the answer. So it would all appear on his teleprompter. Now, you would think that the mainstream media, hard-hitting reporters, as you cited earlier, adversarial, that when they see a candidate who might be the oldest president in history if he gets elected, who would be if he gets elected, might turn on the campaign and go into feeding frenzy mode and say, how did you have that on the teleprompter? Did you get that group to give you their Q's and A's ahead of time? Does he need the answer to how do you get people to join a union to be written down? Is this a staged event? What other groups have you gotten to give you the Q's and A's ahead of time? This was all the, feet, the makings of a feeding frenzy. But you know what? It was Joe Biden. And well, if they had covered it that way, it would have helped Donald Trump. So they wouldn't cover it that way. Softest, easiest coverage imaginable. Well, I'm just thinking to myself, we're making assumptions about the teleprompter. Obviously, we didn't mention that you, you said very blithely from his basement. 
But, you know, it was during a time of a coronavirus, so it limited campaigning for many people. I'm not, ob- I'm not objecting to his doing events from the basement okay. during the crisis. I'm objecting to the fact that the AFL-CIO gave him the cue ahead of time. It was loaded on his prompter. The answer was there. Totally staged event. And the press doesn't care. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that the press has covered, for example... Biden's age much more aggressively than they'd cover Trump's age. What do you say? No, I I disagree with that. I think when Joe Biden fell walking up the steps of Air Force One, all the coverage was Biden aides say he's okay. When Donald Trump walked slowly down a ramp from West Point after a speech, front page of the New York Times raises serious questions about his health, and the only people they asked were critics of Donald Trump's. So when Biden falls... They ask the Biden staff. When Trump doesn't fall, they ask Trump critics. So, no, I I don't think that's fair. Now, I I do think there's been a turn in mainstream press coverage about Joe Biden since the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think that did unleash a lot of reporters who then finally got tough on Joe Biden, and it's continued ever since then. I think, interestingly, the New York Times of of most recent date uh, has started to publish on the front page polls showing that Democrats don't want him to run again for re-election. Their coverage of Joe Biden in Saudi Arabia was brutal. So I can't help but think if the New York Times is going through a little bit of a phase right now, sending a signal they actually do want a different Democrat, a younger Democrat, to replace Joe Biden for him not to run for re-election. But I also think it's a passing phase, and if Joe Biden does run, They'll be right back to how vigorous Joe Biden is and how important it is to defeat whoever the Republican may be. Now, last week, uh, there was quite a controversy about a conservative outlet getting something wrong, which was the Wall Street Journal on this case of a rape, uh, a horrific act against a 10-year-old girl uh, who had to then be transported across state lines. Um, You know, I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, is Ari Fleischer cherry-picking to remind us of the partisan divide in the country rather than saying, you know what, the press can get things wrong. And the press does get things wrong, but my point here in the book is so much during the Trump years, everything they got wrong was, was information that never should have been put on the air in the first place, the Steele dossier. That's not cherry-picking. That's a whole forest of cherry trees. Everybody ran with the Steele dossier. It dominated Washington. They all wrote it was unsubstantiated and unverified, right. but that didn't stop them from covering it. I mean, I guess, one, I, I grew up in an era, and you did too, when if an editor thought something was unsubstantiated and undocu- un- unverified, you don't put it on the air until it's substantiated and verified. But we've blown past that. The Internet is part of it. Social media is part of it. Journalistic organizations, particularly the biggest, most prominent legacy organizations, no longer can have the restraint they used to have because they get beat by the Internet. And it's damaged good journalism. It means everybody's in a rush to put things out. In the case you just cited, you know, when I hear things like that, and this is always my reaction when there's a shooting, I always wait 24 hours before I try to, before I comment. Because you have to wait and let things settle. You have to wait and see what's truthful, what's not truthful. Let the clouds clear. But the pressure on reporters to report immediately has led for a lot of incorrect information to get reported. My beef with it is that pressure to report combined with what I do believe is liberal bias, 
reporters increasingly becoming activists, the lack of conservatives in newsroom, the overwhelming tendency of reporters to be Democrat and to think the same, act the same, tweet the same, has led to a terrible rush to condemn. And that's what was done to Donald Trump, and that's what's going to be done, I think, to whoever the Republican nominee is in 2024, even if it's not Donald Trump. You know, you just said something, and I, there's a little bit of this in the book as well, and I just advise people to pick it up. It's worth the time. But you mentioned social media sort of encouraging people to make flash calls, and that that has yeah. now extended beyond social media into what we call legacy or mainstream media. Um, but there's a breakdown in terms of the gatekeeper function, that editing function, because people want to be first. So is that the real target of this book, or is it the liberal media? It's, it's both. You, you know, one of the things I did in this book, one, is I hired an opposition research firm to go in and pull the public records of the White House press corps, the 49 reporters who sit in those seats, and see what party they're registered to. Yeah. And it came back 12 to 1 Democrat to Republican in the White House briefing room. Now, one, why isn't it one to one? Or could you imagine if it was 12 to 1 Republican to Democrat, how different the news would be? Journalism has an original sin. The people who go into journalism are too much, by and large, cut from a very familiar, similar cloth. Overwhelmingly Democratic voters and, of course, college-educated. And what you have then is a slice of America, college-educated Democrat voters, who increasingly only know how to talk to fellow college-educated Democrat voters. And another site poll that I have in here, it's from the Pew organization, shows there's only one group of Americans who think the press understands them, and it's college-educated Democrats. If you're a Democrat with just a high school degree, you say the press doesn't understand me. Independents with or without high school degrees, college degrees, say the press doesn't understand me, and of course Republicans all say the same thing. The media has driven itself into an ideological, cultural cul-de-sac. They can only relate to one group of people, and that's why they carve the news, create the news, cover certain stories the way they do. It's why Colin Kaepernick, when he kneeled at a football game, became a symbol of her heroism to so many college-educated Democrats, including reporters. But to the rest of the country, it was an act of disrespect. But the press didn't see it that way. They thought that was a narrow-minded take, an intolerant take, bordered on racism. And this is where I will blow the whistle. When you have so many people cut from that same cloth become reporters who see the world the same way, you reinforce a very narrow thinking in newsrooms. And it's that same narrow thinking that was said that Donald Trump is a danger to the republic and we need to protect America by getting Donald Trump, which led to so many false stories be putting on the air that had to later be retracted. I make the case in the book for more ideological diversity in newsrooms. I think a booster shot of independent thought would be very helpful to keep newsrooms and help them go back to being more objective, more fair, fewer errors. Well, you make this point, uh, and effectively, but I just think, from my perspective, the number one newspaper in America is the Wall Street Journal, which has a very conservative editorial page. I think about, you know, the power of Internet websites. Boy, dominated by the right, I think they are like number, you know, maybe more than five of the top ten uh, political websites dominated by conservatives, uh, you know, like the Drudge Report for many years. And when you think about talk radio, my gosh, Rush Limbaugh, 
you know, rest in peace. He's gone. But still, it's conservatives who dominate in talk radio. So aren't you like, again, you know, being very selective and picking on the lib- what you call the liberal news media? Yeah, I think there's a fascinating split in our country. And my book is about the mainstream media, and I define that by saying the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC. Uh, And keep in mind, most Americans still do get their news from the networks. They don't get it from Fox or CNN or cable. They do get it from ABC, NBC, CBS. Well, hold on a second, because they they do get it from the Internet. That's now the number one I'm going to get there. Okay. Yep, I'm getting there. And talk radio has long been dominated by conservatives, and in recent years there has been a growth of conservative media, uh, especially on the Internet, the Daily Wire, the Washington Examiner, the Federalist. All of that is relatively new, and none of it would have happened if the mainstream media didn't lose so many customers. And the reason it lost so many customers and allowed these splits to develop was because they continued to tell the news from a left point of view. So a number of customers just said, we need a breakaway. We need something else that we can relate to because the existing product is, is not serving us. The media is the only organization, business I know, that loses customers and says, what's wrong with our customers? Instead of saying, what's wrong with us? And one of the key points I make in the book is I lament this balkanization of the news. I would so much rather pick up one paper or watch one source of news and say it's fair, it's accurate, it's objective, it's down the middle, and I'm done for the day. I can believe what they're telling me, and now I'll tell you what I think about it. But the problem is too much of the media now tells us what we're supposed to think, what we're supposed to conclude. It's too editorial. But my book, Make No Mistake, is about the mainstream media. Other people have written their books about Fox News or about conservative media. I've written a book in the other direction. Well, there's no question about that. Now, what about the idea that you, Ari Fleischer, are such an intriguing figure to write this book? Because you were the press secretary for George W. Bush. And, of course, you know, even people on the right are critical of the walk up to that war, especially the issue of weapons of mass destruction and whether they existed and didn't exist. Ultimately, they didn't exist. And people would say, well, is Ari Fleischer really not the guy to be making this argument? How do you respond? I'm, I'm really glad you asked me that. I defended the media on that because the media faithfully and accurately reported what we all believed. And when I say we all, I'm not only talking about the CIA, which concluded during the Clinton years, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. They made the same conclusions in the Bush years, and everybody knew that was their conclusion, including us in the Bush administration, including Egyptian intelligence, Israeli intelligence, French intelligence. The world thought it won. So when I hear people now retroactively go back and say, the Bush administration lied, or anybody lied, it's such revisionism. We were wrong. No question about it. And as a result of being wrong, a commission was formed to get into why the intelligence community could have gotten this wrong. The American people threw Republicans out of office in 2006. Our system corrected itself. President Bush, I'm sorry to say, left office extremely unpopular. So the corrective mechanisms in our system switched into gear. But not because anybody lied or misled, 
but because we had wrong information, in large part because Saddam fooled everybody. He created a whole network to make people, including Iran, think he had weapons of mass destruction, and we picked up that network and we believed it was accurate. So it's a right question, Juan, but the right conclusion, and I wish people would say this in, in general, when somebody you don't like in politics says something that you don't like, it's not that they're lying. They might be wrong or they might be mistaken. They might have bad information. Again, I don't rush to contradict or challenge other people's motives. I try to think it through and figure it out. But no question, the Bush administration, we were wrong. But in that that scenario, clearly the press was quite, well, I don't know, should we say gullible? But they, they went right along with it. They were not antagonistic. Uh, towards you or the Bush administration, they told the American people this is what is being uh, is told to us by the administration. And they, in fact, the opinion people were quite supportive. I think that's a yeah. fact. Well, and I think it's very hard for the media when they're being told uh, by the intelligence community. And they've been told it now, not just during the Bush years, but during the Clinton years as well, that Saddam has WMD. How are they to have superior knowledge? How is the press to get that right when the intelligence community gets it wrong? And that's why going back contemporaneously into the early 2000s, I defended the press's coverage on that because they weren't in a superior position to know. There were, there were some, a few isolated people, Scott Ritter of all people, one of the former uh, arms inspectors. He was one of the few people who called it out and said that we were wrong. He didn't have credibility. People didn't believe him. Ultimately, he did turn out to be right. But how is the media to assess that? So put that into the current context and go back to collusion, go back to the Steele dossier, et cetera. Nobody in the media had anybody's conclusions. What they did have were people's suspicions. And this is where the press puffed those suspicions up into just a feeding frenzy against President Trump, even though they did not have evidence. The press ran with it, and as the press likes to say, when Donald Trump says something without evidence, the press didn't have evidence of their charges against Trump, but it didn't stop them. Well, let's stick for a second before we get back to Trump. With the Bush years, when you were the press secretary, then you have the whole episode over the torture memos. And again, it looked like the press was saying, you know what, this is what the administration is telling us. Uh, there's a need to defend America. These people are enemies. Uh, and subsequently, then people begin to ask questions, and it looks like the press had simply bought into what the Bush administration and its spokesman was telling them. Well, as soon as the pictures from Abu Ghraib emerged, everybody was writing the story, and those pictures told the story, and, and, and the administration took the heat for it. I, I will say this, one, and I don't know how much you want to get back into these years. One of the decisions President Bush made, and it was a fateful decision, he will stand by it, I know, is after September 11th, we were told by the CIA, it is not a question of if, It is a question of when the second wave will be. And the second wave could be biological, it could be chemical. And President Bush made the determination to do everything in his power to prevent it from happening. And now some people, now that it never did happen, we were able to prevent an awful lot of attacks. Some people have said now that you went too far, President Bush. You shouldn't have taken the steps that you've taken. He will live with the decisions he made, and he's comfortable with those decisions because he knew that he was doing things like military tribunals, drone strikes to protect the country, and the enhanced interrogation techniques, as he called them. All of that is what he did when he was told it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. 
The criticism is understandable, um, but I would point out to you, particularly the drone strikes, the military tribunals, things of that nature, uh, have now been carried out not only by George Bush, but by his three successors, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden. Right. Well, when I was talking to you about the, well, about weapons of mass destruction and the torture stuff, again, you were the spokesman, and that's why I'm saying people, as they read through this book, may think, well, Ari may be making points, but is he a flawed messenger? Yeah, but as you noticed, I instantly acknowledged that we were wrong. The Bush administration was wrong. How many reporters have said we were wrong about collusion? How many reporters have said we were wrong about the Steele dossier? They just sweep it under the rug and they keep being wrong. How many stories does CNN put on the air about Donald Trump Jr. having access to the WikiLeaks before WikiLeaks even released the hacked emails that they had? As soon as that story went on, CNN, Manu Raju reported it. Feeding frenzy, CBS News said it confirmed the same story. It was never true to begin with. And as soon as it was found out by the Washington Post that it wasn't true, they just stopped talking about it. They didn't retract it. They didn't say we were wrong. And, and this is what the media continued to do throughout the Trump years. Remember the stories about Donald Trump was removing blue mailboxes from street corners so he could steal the 2020 election? It was because the Postal Service was refurbishing mailboxes. But that became a feeding frenzy for two weeks that every time a blue mailbox was removed, people thought Donald Trump ordered it off the street. <laughs> On election night, the Saturday the election was called for Joe Biden, church bells went off in Paris, fireworks went off in London, ABC News, CBS, ABC News, NBC News, and um, ABC News all report, CNN and ABC News, all reported that it was an international celebration of Joe Biden's victory and Donald Trump's defeat. And you know what, Juan? It had nothing to do with America's election. It was the weekly call to mass in Paris where the church bells rang, and it was a celebration of a 500-year-old holiday in England called Guy Fawkes Day, bonfire night, and nothing to do with America's election. But my case in the book is that when you are a reporter who can't stand Donald Trump, when everybody in your newsroom wants Donald Trump to be defeated, and then Donald Trump is defeated, the election's over, Joe Biden's the declared winner, and church bells go off and fireworks go off, you just assume everybody around the world is just like me. They're all celebrating. When it had absolutely zero to do with our election, yet somehow these three news outlets put it on the air as a reaction to our election, this is the deception that I see that reporters sub subjected themselves to in an effort to get Trump, where they allowed them to put their guard down and put anti-Trump information on the air time and time and time again. It wasn't that they were wrong. It was that they were out to get Trump and put things on the air that they didn't check. So we've been talking a little bit about the past in terms of the fact that you were the press secretary for George W. Bush. Now you sound as if you are supportive of Donald Trump. Is that right? Is that a correct assumption? I'm supportive of accurate journalism, and that's why I wrote my book. I haven't made my mind up yet about Donald Trump in 2024. Uh, I'm going to wait and see. I might not be for him. Maybe I will be. It depends on who the Republican primary opponents are. I'll tell you this. I hope he does not declare his candidacy prior to the November election. I would much rather this election be a referendum on Joe Biden than a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. If he declares before the election, I think that would be a dream come true for the Democrats. 
So I, I don't want that to happen. Um, I do want the Republican Party to keep moving. I do want the Republican Party to be a civil party. But I do admire President Trump's ability to get things done for this country, to break the mold, to create the Abraham Accords, to destroy ISIS, to have the lowest poverty rate in America since 1958, pre-pandemic. There were a lot of successes under Donald Trump's belt on his watch. There were a lot of failures, too, mostly failures of behavior. Well, what about uh, the January 6th committee's revelations about the fact that President Trump uh, you know, appeared to be indifferent to the violence at the Capitol, uh, even ignited some of that violence. And when he learned that people were armed, was not discouraging their presence at the Capitol. Doesn't that raise some questions in your mind? And certainly the press, I, if we just talk about the press, the press has been slow to catch up with the January 6th committee. That's not the press making those revelations. It's the, it's, you know, the political body. Well, I wouldn't say the press is slow. Most of the press is covering it live. Um, but I do write about it in my book, one, and, and I take on the president when it came to January 6th. And I have said live on Fox News regularly that the president's worst mistake on January 6th was holding a rally on the ellipse the same day that there was a vote in the Congress. You don't put nitro and glycerin anywhere near each other when you're a leader. He never should have called that rally that day. He should have had better judgment. And I criticize everything about January 6th. And I regularly have done it live on Fox News. Anybody who attacked the police, trespassed in the Capitol, crossed into the Capitol, walked through the Capitol, or did anything worse in the Capitol, deserves to be prosecuted. End of story. And, and I thought the president's behavior, and I tweeted it that day, was wrong. He should have been immediately calling out, telling the, people, the violent rioters to go home. Uh, so I, I'll, I've explained that. I'll continue to say that. But I don't think that excuses the coverage of Donald Trump prior to January 6th. Because everything I've written about in my book preceded the January 6th riot. The mistakes the press made, the coverage they gave to him, was really, in essence, the press saying that the American people erred in 2016. That they never should have elected Donald Trump. And our job as reporters is not to be fair or objective or down the middle. Our job is to right that wrong because Donald Trump is a threat to the republic. And that's what I object to, and, I, and, I, and that's why my book is about journalists and their coverage. It really is less about President Trump or President Bush or any other president or any future president. It's about journalistic behavior and journalistic coverage. Well, I think that's absolutely accurate. And I, again, uh, to the readers out there, it's about the journalism. It's not about the politics. But you are a political figure in this country. That's how I think you, most people know you, uh, even before uh, President Bush, you were with Elizabeth Dole. You worked for Senate people in the Senate. Uh, so you're known as a political player, Ari. That's just a reality. So when you think about something like Donald Trump, it seems so political. And I think Donald Trump has helped to polarize not only the country, but in some sense, the media coverage. And I, when I think of this, I think of people going on the air um, and having trouble just calling out statements that he made are, that are total lies, but they say, you know, the press can't say lie. New York Times, Washington Post, very reluctant to even write that word, when in fact, that's what the man was doing. What would you have the press do? Did, was Cory Booker lying when he said the Stacey election's election was stolen? Again, I think the context was missing. He explained why he was making this comment. It wasn't an outright statement 
without any explanation. And I think President... He said it was a stolen election. Well, I think... But that's not a lie. See, this is my point, Juan. Okay. The press, the press sits in judgment of some, mostly Republicans, mostly conservatives, certainly populists, and says things like that. And I won't do that. I'll be fair on both sides. You know, my book begins with a, uh, a CNN show, Don Lemon hosting a show where he was bashing President Trump, but this time it went beyond criticism of Trump. Fair game, criticized the president, but he started to mock, and his two guests on the show mocked Trump supporters, disdain for Trump supporters, laughing uproariously at Trump supporters, talking about how one of his guests put on a fake Southern accent and was looking down his nose, showing disdain for Trump voters as he expressed the way they talk and the way they act and the way they think. And Don Lemon couldn't control himself. He was laughing uproariously, wiping a tear from his eye. And after his two guests were done mocking Trump supporters, he picked himself up from the table. He literally put his head on the table and said, thanks, I needed that. And if you don't think what's contributing to the polarization of our country is a media that can mock half the nation, and the people they mock want, just to put a point on it, these are people who carry guns. These are people whose grandfathers and fathers taught them how to hunt. These are people who pray every day. These are people who think that life begins at conception. These are the people that the press mocks. These are the people who voted largely for Donald Trump or might vote for Ron DeSantis or Christy Nome. And the problem the media has, and I blow the whistle on this book, is Don Lemon laughs at them. CNN laughs at them. We cannot be a strong democracy if the media laughs at half the country. Take on political leaders. Go hard after a candidate for office. Be fair, but leave the population out of it. Don't mock the people who support them. Donnie Deutsch went on MSNBC and said about Trump supporters, you are like the Nazis standing at the door saying this way or that way, this place, that place. He likened Trump supporters to Nazis. You don't think that's what polarizes the country? Well, let's get back to the question I asked you, which was about the lie and the big steal. This is a lie that has now affected people who call themselves Republicans. I think it's like three quarters, according to the polls, who still believe that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. Why do they believe this, Ari? Because he's told them that the election was stolen. Ari Fleischer says that's not true. So what is the press to do when you see not only a lie, but the lie succeeding in persuading what was once a, you know, still a major American political party, most of their supporters, that the lie is to be believed. And right after 2000, most Democrats thought George Bush stole the election from Al Gore. And you know what? The chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Terry, Go- Terry um, um, McAuliffe, said that the, George Bush stole that election. So, you know, both sides do it, Juan. Donald Trump does it the most. Donald Trump does it more and does it louder than anybody else. But don't think Donald Trump's the first. My book gives example after example of the Democrats who said Bush stole the election in 2000. Numerous Democrats, because of how close Ohio was in 2004, said Bush stole the election in Ohio. I cite cases where Democrats said 
The machines were tainted in Wisconsin in the 2004 election. Uh, there are cases where Hillary Clinton questioned the absentee vote because, uh, I'm sorry, the popular vote in the state because it didn't match the exit polls. And she alleged something had to have happened to turn the election away from John Kerry in 2004. The Democrats in 2016, case after case, Democrat after Democrat, objected to the Trump vote. And how many Democrats tried to overturn the election in the Electoral College in 2016? All through lies. Where All is through it? saying that Donald Trump wasn't the legitimate winner. Well, that happened in 2016 because they said that the members of the Electoral College needed a classified briefing to find out what happened with Trump colluding with Russia. He didn't collude with Russia, but they said he did and demanded a classified briefing of the Electoral College. Well, I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you, boy, what a difference between people having questions. Clearly, Al Gore stepped aside. He didn't, you know, exercise his influence as vice president to try to undo the election result. And clearly there was no attack by Clinton-Gore supporters on the Capitol that turned violent and led to people dying. And there was no suggestion uh, from any of the Democrats that somehow, therefore, uh, Bush was not to be president. I mean, it, it seems like you're comparing apples and oranges. My, my point is, when you asked about the use of the word steal yeah. and therefore lie. Now, um, nothing is going to justify the January 6th riot. There's nothing I will ever say that justifies it. Everything about it was wrong. But when it comes to one party saying the other stole an election, one is you still won't even criticize Stacey Abrams for her refusing to concede that race or her, her refusing to call uh, Governor Kemp legitimate. You won't criticize Cory Booker. You won't criticize Sherrod Brown, even though they said it was a stolen election. So you got a little bit of what's good for the goose should be good for the gander going on here. Well, no, I say that what's they, their argument was about the context, about how things were set up. I think that what President Trump did was clearly to say that it was stolen without any evidence. Uh, but, you know, I'm not trying to excuse anybody. I just think that that's a wholly different context. And when we present it as the same, I just think, boy, that's way out of, you know, proportion uh, for the viewer. Did it ever occur reader. to you, Juan, that both Stacey Abrams' evidence was wrong and Donald Trump's evidence were wrong and that neither should say it was stolen? No. This is my point. I think the mainstream media would have so much more credibility and Republicans would believe the mainstream media before, more if they called out both sides. But you're only willing to call out one side. You're still making excuses for Stacey Abrams right now. She had no evidence to support her claim. None. She just had a hope and a wish that so many losing candidates have that something must be wrong. And... and it just baffles me that to this day you're not willing to criticize Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey, or Sherrod Brown, senator from Ohio, for their statements that the election was stolen. You're saying context. You're making an excuse for one side, and you blame the other. No, well, you know what? I mean, I clearly, you know, I just don't think that's right. I think when you talk about issues like voter suppression and possibly changing districts and like, I think that is palpable, real, factual and that's what was cited by Stacey Abrams and Senator Booker. But let's move on. You, you absolutely are known also as a press agent. And you have had tremendous success past the time of being press secretary to the president of the United States as a press agent. But people go on the air and they don't always identify, hey, you know, I represent this group, I'm with this group. It could be a gas company, a tobacco company, an oil company. Uh, you know, 
How do you feel about this? Because you're a talking head, well known to the American people and trusted. Do you think this is the way that business should be done? Well, if you've got an example you want to bring to my attention, go ahead and do so. But if you're asking me about if I have any business interests that I'm not disclosing, I don't know no. what you're referring to. No, well, no. Well, wait a second. Hold on. I, I, I meant it in general because I don't generally think of you. I know exactly who Ari Fleischer is. I think I've known you for some time. Uh, but no, I think people aren't always aware of when they see people talking, oftentimes identified as a Republican consultant, a Democratic consultant, a strategist, or, and they don't know who these people are working for. It could be NARAL or it could be a anti-abortion group. I don't know, but oftentimes not said. That's what I was trying yeah. to get at. Look, when I was a contributor for CNN and Fox, and they both had the same policy. If you make money, if you have a client, that you're talking about that client on the air, you must disclose. And I've tried to live by that, and, and I, I do that. I notify Fox of who my clients are, if it's a political topic or a topic that could come up on the air, and either the topic isn't raised to me or it's disclosed so everybody can know. But actually, one, I think there's something much more pernicious, and that's anonymous sources. I'm convinced that the press today gives an anonymity to sources like Candy, and they need to stop. How do you know what to believe when you read an anonymous source? Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's false. Sometimes in the case of the New York Times where they gave somebody named Anonymous the editorial page to write an op-ed that was anti-Trump, it turned out to be Miles Taylor was the deputy chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security. He, he, he was hard, hardly had any insight to anything going on in the West Wing or especially into the Oval Office. If their op-ed said this is by Miles Taylor, deputy chief of staff at DHS, nobody would have taken it very seriously. But the press gives anonymity to sources as a way to puff up the source, especially if the quote is juicy enough, and it's done tremendous damage to good journalism. CNN got bit the most by giving anonymity to sources and then putting information on the air. They often had to retract what their anonymous source gave them. So if there's any one area for improvement as journalism, it's only give anonymity to somebody if it's an intelligence operative or they're going to lose their job. Don't give it in any other circumstances. But I, I can't tell you, even to this day, how often the press will call me on things and they begin the conversation by saying, we well, can do this on background or keep you out of it if you like. And, I'm going, and I almost always say to them, no, put my name on it. Reporters need to get more of a spine. They need to tell their sources, I can't use what you say if you don't put your name on it. And well, you know what? If you did that, we'd be a much less polarized country. Because if you put your name on something, chances are you're not going to go as far and say something as nasty. You're going to actually say something that's more responsible and legitimate because your name is on it. And reporters should change that. Well, I think people would like to do that who are in the journalism business. The question is, can they get the story? Remember the whole controversy actually during the Bush administration about Valerie Flame? And, you know, that was a woman who was covert and then all of a sudden exposed that whole thing of anonymity um, can be difficult if you're trying to get the facts of a story and you have people who fear that they would be politically punished or vulnerable even. But reporters threatened. give it away, Juan. Reporters don't even try anymore. Re reporters begin so many of their conversations by saying we can do this on background. And especially stories that have just a nasty quote in them. There's no need to give somebody anonymity so they can say something negative about the other party. If that's what you think, put your name on it. 
and reporters shouldn't shield them or protect them. I made the allowance for if somebody is in the intelligence community, this is where reporters have done good work and have written a lot of stories that otherwise wouldn't have seen the light of day because people in intelligence can't talk, they know they'll be fired, or if somebody would be fired from their job if they said something. But that's the one issue, and particularly in political coverage, even you know pollsters, they won't put their name on stories. Well, then don't quote them. Find somebody else to quote, and journalism will be better. Well, I think that it should be the goal to get everybody on the record. I'm just thinking that that's, again, a matter of trying to tell stories effectively. And I see that across political lines, liberal and conservative media. Yes. Do you agree? Yes. Yes. Now, you, again, as a public relations agent, you take on very difficult clients. I think one of your clients now is Saudi Arabia on this golf tour. Well, you got it a little bit reversed. There's the golf. My client is an American group, Live Golf. It's funded by Saudi Arabia, correct on that? Right. So that's a difficult client. I'm thinking, boy, Ari's going to have to really shine through here. But when you're doing something like that, the people then say, well, Ari, you can't just be straightforward in terms of criticism of the Saudis in the way that we're seeing because you have an interest. Oh, you can't? Okay. Well, go right ahead. Look at my Twitter feed. All right. I have been critical of Saudi Arabia. I've also praised Saudi Arabia when they had a... Um, here, here, so here's what... I run a sports communications firm, and I've done it since I left the White House. So for almost 20 years now, right. I've worked in the world of sports, working in all kinds of different leagues uh, for athletes, owners, uh, commissioners, players. And when it comes to this issue, Juan, I've criticized Saudi Arabia when they've had athletes who refuse to compete against Israeli athletes. I've criticized them for this on Twitter. And then I praised them. Even before I ever heard of Live Golf, I praised Saudi Arabia earlier this year when they had a tennis player play, an Israeli tennis player. It was one of the breakthroughs that's underway in the Middle East. As we're watching a Middle East change dramatically, where especially the Sunni nations are working very closely with the United States and with Israel on a truly reformist, more peaceful direction, much of it a bulk work to Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas and Yemen and Syria. So these are the most important reforms underway in the Middle East. Um, but I'll always call balls and strikes. Uh, but my job here is golf. It's a sport. It's the commercial enterprise of golf. And I'm proud to be working for Live Golf. I'm just wondering, though, you know, in that capacity, as I said, your job is to sell something. I think that's legitimate and that's appropriate. But again, it would raise questions when, you, when Ari Fleischer writes a book and says, well, these people are biased. People would say, yeah, but that's, that's just part of the mix of the big game. When you have someone like Live Golf and a big name like Ari Fleischer, Ari Fleischer's out there as a proponent for Live Golf, while many people are highly critical, even some of the most well-known golfers like Tiger Woods. I really think Live Golf has nothing to do with whether the press made a mistake when they went down the air and talked about the church bells ringing in Paris no, or I understand fireworks that. in London or the I blue agree. mailboxes that were moved from street corners. One has zero to do with the other. No, but I'm saying for Ari Fleischer to be making this point, people say Ari Fleischer's job is to sell the press, is to in fact steer the press. And when Ari Fleischer then says, well, the press no. sometimes is critical. You know. Now, I, I wrote the book because I lament what's happened to the press. I want our democracy to have a press where people say, when somebody says it, I trust it. When somebody says it, I believe it. I want the press to tell us the facts about what happened and leave the interpretations and decisions to we, to the people. That's how the press should work in America. 
But as I quote two editors at the New York Times is saying, their news pages have become increasingly opinionated. And as Jill Abramson, the former executive director of the New York Times, said, and top editor, I quote her in my book, that the news pages of the New York Times became, and Washington Post were distinctly anti-Trump. That's wrong. And when people inside the media say that about themselves, yes, I'm going to amplify their voices and I'm going to blow my whistle because it's not good for the country. Well, I, I can very easily and proudly wear two hats. One is working for the company that I run, a sports company, and two, being a student and an observer of the American media. I have a lot of experience in the latter, a lot of experience in the former. And what I've seen in the media is what led me to write this book. I want the media to do better. I want the media to be credible. I want more conservatives to go into the newsrooms. I want newsrooms to have a, a, booster, a booster shot of independent thought. It would be so helpful to the press if they weren't so like-minded, if it wasn't a 12 to 1 ratio at the White House. This is what journalism needs. You know, I, I've twice gone to Columbia Journalism School to address young graduates. I mean, these things really mean a lot to me because I like the press. And in both times I went, I asked in the previous presidential election, did you vote for the Republican or the Democrat? Mm -hmm. 24 to 0 was the vote for the Democrat to the Republican. This is killing journalism. In any other field, if they looked and they said we are so ideologically lopsided, we might be missing some stories, people would say, yeah, that's right. In journalism, it just seems they repeat the cycle. I'm trying to break that cycle. Well, let's talk about that for a second. We're running out of time, but I think it's such a rich topic. Isn't it the case, though, that if you, Ari Fleischer, created an independent network, that you couldn't compete in terms of cable news? You couldn't compete if it was an uh, online website. You couldn't compete if it was a newspaper that, in fact, what you see is that people want you know, especially in prime time on cable and especially on the opinion pages of the big papers, they want to see a point of view. They want that opinion. Yeah, I think it's been cyclical, one. I think people are also increasingly getting sick of that. I think people, and I get this question all the time, where can I go to get the news straight? Right. And that, this is, I think, where the American people are going to end up. We, we're a nation with a pendulum that swings. And I think the, the pendulum has swung so much in the direction of opinionated journalism, particularly in the mainstream media, particularly in the New York Times with its story selection and its, uh, its, its bias in the Washington Post and the networks as well. Uh, that pendulum is swinging and people want to get objective news as well. It exists on the right too. But I do have to point out, conservative media is booming while liberal media, mainstream media, is declining. And that tells you something too about the American people. But I want objectivity and neutrality, particularly from reporters who are covering our government. That's not the place for them to put their opinions into their news stories. It is the place for them to put the facts into the news stories and let the people decide what the right opinions should be as a result. That would be an improvement for the American media. And that's why I wrote my book. That is something I, I hope commercially can be supported. We'll see what changes they make at CNN. The new ownership at CNN knows that it was too opinionated, too liberal, and they're trying to change that. I'll be very curious to see what the CNN experiment leads to. Well, Ari Fleischer, congratulations. Here's the book, Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias, Why the Press Gets So Much Wrong and Just Doesn't Care. Ari Fleischer, thanks for being my guest today. It was a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Juan. You're always a gentleman. 
Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>